It is a very quiet day and I'm here in the woods and I love it. I so like to be here. I'm pretty far away from home and uh, the woods are covered in, in frost. Still very cold and nippy. Chocolate milk type of weather. But I, what I appreciate the most is just how quiet it is. The only sound you hear is of bikes rushing by. Because I'm actually walking on one of the bike lanes in the forest itself. But bikes don't make noise. Very, actually, especially now with these electrical bikes. It's sometimes too quiet. You don't hear them approaching you. And uh, so I always make sure that I walk on the left side here of this bike lane. In the past, with older bikes, you would hear this ticking noise. Um, especially if it had a, a bike with the multiple gears, the system would just make this tick, 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 tick. So you could always hear a, a bike approaching from far away. Now with these electrical bikes, you don't hear anything. It's just completely silent but i like i like it when it's so quiet especially because it's almost christmas a few days from now on sunday it's going to be the first day of christmas saturday evening christmas eve by the way i'm so grateful that this year christmas is on a sunday which means that for us priests it saves us a couple of extra uh, celebrations. I always like it when I think this should just be always during the weekend because there have been uh, situations where you would have like this, this non-stop sequence of masses for uh, the fourth of Advent and then a few days later it would be Christmas and second day of Christmas and then you get get this whole other list of uh, Christmas related celebrations uh, you've got the New Year's Eve uh, which in some parishes was also celebrated with Mass and then you've got the Feast of the Solemnity on the first day of January of Mary the Mother of God which is a, an obligatory <laughs> solemnity so people should go to church but most people on the 1st of January they don't think about going to church because they're still recovering from the night before so <laughs> this year I think that's also on a Sunday um, and what and that's also true for just regular people like me uh, oftentimes in the in the winter season in the Christmas season um, I feel like it's and it depends on the year but it can be a bit too much and it's so every time you got to recharge yourself again and work on another homily and i'm very grateful that i usually don't have to sit down and, and write down my homilies that they just come to me i can't imagine how uh, my colleagues do this especially if they are also burdened with <laughs> extra um celebrations like funerals or baptisms there's stuff like that um, there's also 
usually quite a demand from um, the elderly, uh, people that are in care homes for the priest to visit or to celebrate some extra masses. This is very, very stressful um, or strenuous, I should say. Not everybody experiences experiences this Christmas time as stress-inducing. As I said last week, stress is not something that the world or life does to you. It's what you do to yourself and the way you react to outside pressure. But um, nevertheless... It is, it's a bit much. So knowing that, even for me, as an assistant priest, Christmas is going to be very busy, I'm extra grateful for these quiet woods. What I wanted to do in these last two walks of the year is to share with you in this in this walk in this episode, um, the most important lessons that I've learned this year, um, and I will try to connect that also with Christmas memories, the things that I recall from when I was a kid, and I'm sure you have your own memories of Christmas and why you love that time so much. Well, I think there are lessons to be learned if we reflect on that. So. That's what I propose to do today. And then next week is going to be the last walk of the year. And that's where I want to reflect on the changes I want to make based on what I've learned, the changes I would like to make next year. So you could see that as almost a bit of a prep for our uh, list of intentions for the new year. <laughs> um, but I think it's good to, to look back, but also to look ahead. But instead of focusing on projects or plans or ideas, focus on who do I want to be this next year? Not what do I want to do? For me, this is new. I've never done that before. I've always formulated my plans for uh, another year, an upcoming year, in terms of what I would like to accomplish. But I think that's the fruit, maybe, of what I've learned this past year. It's, it's much more important to think about who do you want to become. And, of course, that's not going to be a different person than the one you are right now. But... It's someone who can mature. And it's where you put your focus. Where if you formulate where you want to grow, uh, that is oftentimes where your energy will flow. It will help, it will inform the choices that you make. And so thinking about who do I want to be in the year to come, that I think is a very, hopefully, um, fertile approach to the whole idea of New Year's resolutions. But let's today go back in time to your earliest Christmas memory. Maybe it's just images or or sounds. Maybe it's the smell of uh, a particular dish or candy that you would eat. Maybe the smell of Frankincense in the church, 
during uh, the the Christmas celebrations. Um, maybe it's 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 images from from the imaginary world, the stories, the movies that you would watch. What what is your very first Christmas memory? Think about that for a, for a moment. Maybe there's something immediately that comes to mind. Just focus on that for for a minute. And also try to feel what that memory does with you. What it evokes. What kind of feeling is that? Is it is it warm and fuzzy? Is it uh Beauty, maybe? Wonderment? Or it could also be... Um, it, goes, it not necessarily always has to be fuzzy and warm and positive. It can also be that if you think of Christmas, you don't feel that good because your early memories of Christmas were not that good. That's possible too. But don't immediately push that away. Um, because it's part of who you are. It's part of who you are right now. It's part of your history. And so it's important as well. And I think in most cases, it will be a mix of, hopefully, lots of positive memories and images and associations. And maybe some that are that are not so positive. Let me share with you my my first image when I think of Christmas. And it is, strangely enough, the image of a drawing that is hanging above my bed, uh, st- stuck to the wall with uh, uh, a piece of tape. It's, um, it's a drawing... Uh, that is very rudimentary, very simple. I can still, I can still picture what it looks like, and it's it's a, a very simple drawing that I made as a maybe three-year-old. I can't have been older than that because I also remember that this was in the second apartment where where we lived. I was born in a um, in a flat in a apartment building in a town called Leitzendam, which is not that far from Vorburg and The Hague, that area, so close to the sea. It was a newer part of the town. It was a village that had started to expand. And so my parents, uh, as starters, not having um, much of an income yet, uh, rented this, this small apartment. And that's where I was born. And I think one year after that, we moved to another apartment building in the same neighborhood. And that's where I spent the first few years of my life. And I still can picture what it looked like. And uh, my room was next to the front door. So if you entered the front door, it was immediately to the right. There was a, a central heating element uh, and then... Um, opposite of the window was my bed and then above my bed was this picture 
and it was uh, I made it with crayons and it depicted uh, the scene, the nativity scene. Um, so there was Mary on the left uh, with a very rudimentary face, just a circle. And then I used red for the mouth and then blue for the eyes. For some reason, I figured that Mary would have blue eyes. And then on the right side uh, of the manger was Joseph holding something that looked like a staff with a bit of imagination. <laughs> I also gave him a beard, which was just a few brown uh, strokes of the pencil. <laughs> and in the center was the manger, and I I didn't know what how to draw that, because it's... How do you depict a child that is lying in a manger? Like a a, a person, you could, that's easy to draw, but something that is horizontal... <laughs> I knew what it looked like in 3D because we had a small nativity scene in the living room, but I didn't know how to how to paint, how to draw it. So I think it was just a box and then used some yellow uh, crayon to uh, symbolize this, the, the, the hay or this, the, the straw or whatever they put Jesus in. And the baby itself also was uh, just a cocoon or something like that. Um, not very, um, not very recognizable. <laughs> but then the, uh, what I do remember very clearly is what was hovering above the scene. So I, there was a a bit of a uh, stable, short, very simple brown building that I uh, drew a, around the scene, and um, above it was an angel. And I was fascinated with angels. Um, it was the most coveted role in school later on when we did these nativity plays. Everybody wanted to be an angel. So you get that nice white robe and uh, silver glittery stuff in your hair and a set of wings. Oh, it was so awesome. You know, who wants to be Joseph if you can be an angel? Come on, these, <laughs> these creatures can fly. <laughs> And I think that fascination was already there when I was like two or three years old. So I was a toddler. But what I distinctly remember was the hair of the angel because I had drawn an angel. An angel is actually very simple to draw. It's just a triangle with a circle on top of it. That's the head. And then some wings, little butterfly wings. But then the hair was glued on. And uh, this, I think, was an idea that my mother had. Is that the hair of the of the figures in the nativity scene would be made out of wool. So we we had all these little threads of of wool, leftover stuff. Um, and so I'd used a bit of brown or black wool for the hair of Joseph, and then some brown wool for. Mary's hair, and we would just glue the strands. I say we, but I, my brother must have been one year old, so I, I glued that to the, to the drawing, and it made it three D, and it was very tactile. I remember it was, I was fascinated with when the glue had dried that you could actually stroke the hair of these figures of these persons, and the angel had very specific hair. It was gold. There was a, a bit of gold thread. 
in that was wrapped around these strands of wool and so the wool itself was was yellow and then the there was this golden glitter and it was so mesmerizing and so i glued that on as the hair of the angel and every night i would go to bed and and before the lights went out i would stare at that angel like that that's so beautiful it was just <laughs> something i created myself but i loved it it was just there watching over the this small family and it was uh, very much i th- i of course i couldn't formulate that at the time but i think that what i what i realized was that there's always someone watching over you there's there's god has sent this angel to protect this very small family and and it's it's beautiful <laughs> it's it's a it's a like, like the the glitter was a bit magical almost this is this is something that transcends our our regular world so that's my very first recollection memory of christmas i don't remember Christmas tree don't rem- certainly don't remember the church all that came much much later and that's that's something i think <laughs> is 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 maybe one of the reasons that we love christmas so much because the isn't the message of christmas that we are not alone that even though our life can sometimes feel very vulnerable, we feel very vulnerable, very small, very poor. Even though sometimes in life we are we're lost, like in a way Joseph and Mary, where we're lost. I don't know. This watch is telling me that it wants to register an activity, so I'm just going to tell it. It's been buzzing for a while now. Because it's, uh, it's telling me, uh, it looks like you're walking. Press go if you are. Yeah, dude, I am. Tighten the watch strap and use GPS outside. Well, I'm outside. I'm just going to press go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes these watches are a little bit too smart. I don't need all that smart behavior when I'm just walking in the woods. Um, what I love about Christmas is that that story reminds us year after year that God saw us and came to us and not just in the form of angels but that child in the manger is our savior and our protector and so we're not alone and in the middle of that winter night it's kind of how we picture it uh, and, and some of the songs that we sing in the Netherlands are talking about snow and how cold it was. <laughs> of course, that is uh, that was probably different in the Holy Land at the time. But anyway, it's the same idea that in the middle of a very stressful, difficult situation for Mary and Joseph, this child brings light and awakens in them this loving care and isn't that what we need so much today? 
especially now that a lot of our our debate in society is so so bitter so angry we live in the middle of this outrage culture where we seem to thrive on on our on our most violent behavior and people are fanning the flames of that anger and that outrage and it often makes me very sad this is so far away from from what we're called to to live and there's a busy road here that I have to walk alongside of I'm actually going to head to the left, but there is another area where I don't think I can uh, walk. I think it's private property. So I'm looking for a way to, uh, to walk around it. Um, but if you look at this nativity scene and you see the simplicity of the scene and at the same time it's the most important event in history where God became one of us and he joined our life to walk with us and to be with us and he would never leave us alone anymore what it breathes the peace the comfort in the midst of all that tension even political tension even as a three-year-old toddler i already i already felt how important that was and how comforting that was and that angel with the golden hair was the last image that I saw before I went to bed, before I went to sleep and before the lights went out. And it comforted me. And I think that we maybe gravitate towards Christmas and especially its cozy, warm uh, atmosphere that we often try to recreate using lights and decorations and hot chocolate and our traditions because we we crave it so much we need it so much especially if the world around us seems to go in the opposite direction of that peace that that nativity scene radiates what what lesson can we learn from a memory like that I think for me, the most important uh, thing that I discovered this past year is that I finally understand what it means to hear Jesus say, and he says it a lot, don't be afraid. Let go of your fear. It's me. I'm here. After the resurrection, he even invites them, you know, touch me, see me, give me something to eat, let me be with you. It's really me. I'm really here with you. Not just as a comforting memory from a time that is now over, but I'm really here with you. All right, I found my way in the woods here. So I'm going to walk away from them the cars in the street 
and enter the wintry woods. I don't think I've ever walked this path, so we will see where it ends. I think it should lead me. I'm now walking towards the north, so ultimately I'll come up to the highway and then I can go to the left and back to the village. Um, but I, I, it took me a year to, f to fully understand the depth of that reassurance. And I think it, it, I first had to also experience my own fear and admit to myself how a lot of what I do and used to do is motivated by fear or is secretly fed by fear. The fear of, well, the most fundamental fear is that of rejection. Obviously, we all want to be acknowledged. It's one of the things that parishioners um, keep telling me after Mass, um, that they notice that I am always looking at people and I'm talking to them and with them. So it's one of the perks of not having written down my homily is that I can... I, I've, it, when I preach, it's more conversation. And I, I talk about day-to-day -day life. I start often with a story. Um, and I end the homily with a story. And it's meant to help us to relate it to our personal day-to-day -day life and then in the midst of that is of course an explanation of of the bible and of what jesus says but it begins and it ends with um our personal lives and people keep telling me i feel as if you were talking to me and i heard something that really spoke to me um you you see us you, or you see me and and that is i think beautiful feedback and always i'm really thankful when people tell me that because um i hear how much it means to them to be seen to be to feel that the church is talking to them and cares for their circumstances and their lives Instead of just preaching something that abstract and then you have to do the work yourself. <laughs> but it's, it's this, this, um, this, this very, um, sometimes even emotional reaction to the feeling that I am seen, I am acknowledged, I, I, am, uh, I can be who I am. This is also something that I always try to do in... Um, in my TikTok videos and when I talk with people in the live streams, it's uh, acknowledging people. Even if it's as simple as mentioning the names of those that uh, post comments in the chat. But naming them and trying to listen to them and trying to be personal as much as possible is... Um, is reflecting something that I find so valuable myself, and that is that uh, it's okay to be me. God sees me, and he loves me as I am. And uh, 
And that makes me feel safe. And it's also something that um, I crave so much. Wow, this is such a beautiful image here. So the sun is shining in the distance. Um, and so the trees are still, some of them still have these golden leaves. And there's the silhouette of this runner <laughs> on the background. Hello. Uh, so you see the, the, the runner running towards me, backlit by the sunshine. Yeah, just, it's hard to describe, but it's, it's beautiful, it's gorgeous. Um, so I'm just, I'm right now, I'm walking towards the sunlight. <laughs> the path itself is in the shadow, but the light is hitting the, the golden leaves here. I'm surprised that there are actually, there are still so many trees with uh, leaves on them. I think it's because it, we haven't had any storms. There's not much wind lately. It's cold, but uh, it's not windy. Oh yes, I'm now stepping into the sunshine. Oh, this is so nice. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a junkie when it comes to the color of the sun, mostly like this, this golden color. Even if it doesn't, it's not warm, but it feels warm just because it's so, the, the color is so nice and orangey. Wow. Okay. You even have to squint a little bit. That's how, how uh, strong the sunlight is. I'm going to put you down, or at least I'm going to put the uh, recorder down for a second because um, I noticed that my left shoe is not tightened. At least the shoelaces aren't, so I'm going to put this on, on the, there you go. <laughs> you can still hear me, right? So um, I'm wearing these uh, walking shoes. And so the laces themselves require, uh, sometimes they will just come loose and I have to refast, uh, I have to reattach them. How does this work? Let me just start again. I've got this. This method <laughs> that I remember from the time that I was walking to Santiago. And I, I can't recall how it's done, but it's, it, I've got this uh, mechanical memory. So my hands just know how to, how to uh, tighten these shoelaces. <laughs> All right, let me just make another knot and then tighten this there you go let's give it an extra pull and this should be fine let me pick you up again sorry about that uh, and then we continue to walk alongside this uh, this patch of farmland there's nothing on it I guess this, this farmland is also uh, taking some time to recover from the harvest <laughs> and then in the springtime they will uh, they'll, they'll sow new seeds there <sighs> so so pretty I love the winter for, for walks hello and I'm not the only one there's a man an older man with a 
white beard and a red hat. And it's not Santa. <laughs> but he does have a little bit of a Santa vibe to him. The, um, this, this fear of, um, of not being good enough uh, to be discarded or rejected um, is uh, something that I had to come to terms with, this, this, uh, especially this year. It's been haunting me for most of my life. And it's one of the main reasons that I um, have always worked so hard. Um, it's, it's at the root of a lot of uh, anxiety and, and anxiety-related issues um, that have hampered me. Just not enough. <laughs> In a sense that I was always... Um, uh, I used that anxiety and that fear of not being good enough to um to to be very productive and as you know i tend to be quite optimistic and good-natured <laughs> i'm i'm often in a good mood but this year was a lot harder than any year before because i started to realize that um some of what i do what i did um was masking a deeper fear and maybe also sadness. Well, let the fear comes first. And it's this... Um, I think it's, it's... I went to the root of where it comes from and it has to do with the way I was brought up and the relationship with parental figures in my life um, that have... Um, I think instilled this idea that um, that in order to be acknowledged and loved and appreciated I had to be better than anyone else uh, I think this was amplified by uh, the behavior of uh, kids in class hello um, especially the bullies um, I was a, a a bit of a nerd as you know and uh, I, I was bullied a lot, and I think that that only made me feel even worse about myself because I wasn't strong. I couldn't fight. I didn't even want to. I didn't have a lot of the behavior that people associated with, uh, you know, boys of my age. I actually was more creative, and I didn't care for soccer, and I I really hated violence. And maybe even that, you know, that aversion of violence uh, also was at least partially caused by having a father who could be extremely erratic in his behavior and very unpredictable and angry and uh, verbally very aggressive at times. I don't know, it's just, it's very hard always to reconstruct what led to uh, this anxiety but it's definitely has not helped and um, but because I had such an aversion of violence um, I, I didn't stand up for myself so I, I was often beat up and I would just cry in a corner <laughs> and, and when I uh, went to complain about it if I dared because oftentimes I, times I didn't dare uh, 
Um, and oftentimes I would still get the, the, the preach to that, uh, well, it was up to me to, to uh, take the high road and uh, I should not, uh, uh, I should just prove that I was better than them by, uh, uh, I don't know, working hard. So that's what I did. That's what I did. And these patterns, these paternal and maternal um, figures in my life that often gave me the feeling that I was unsafe, uh, that I was not good enough unless I was the best <laughs> on an intellectual level. Um, I think that, that those, those parental figures have popped up in my life time and again. And I would even project that those, how would you say that? I, I would outwardly project the people that I feared onto people in charge, whether it was a seminary uh, president or a bishop, anyone who was in a position of authority over me was someone I was afraid of. Even, even people in the television industry that had power over me, that could decide what, or that I let decide what I did and what I didn't do. I was motivated very often uh, by a deep-rooted anxiety that if I didn't do what they told me to do, if I didn't ex excel in what they asked me to do, I would be discarded and rejected. Um, the, the, the reason that I actually came to that, and this, this has been, I think, the big eye-opener, and also the most important lesson this year, was for me to acknowledge, oh, there's a, hello, <laughs> it's like there's a bike parked in the middle of the woods, but there is someone who is, uh, I think, doing observations of birds or something like that. I don't know. You got a lot of uh, bird spotters here in the area. But uh, it, through a number of outside circumstances, things that happened around me, um, and I, I, can't, I can't really go in detail, but... Um, th th there have been a, a number of events that have um, kind of opened my eyes and showed me like the root of what has been so debilitating over the years. And, uh, and I, they have revealed, I think, that the, the core of a lot of things that I struggle with is this fear of rejection. Once you know that and you see it... Uh, you go through a whole number of stages, or I went, I don't know if that's the case for everyone, but I definitely had to go through a number of stages. First of all is, um, is grief. Is grief, is sadness that um, some people in my life that had a position of power over me and responsibility didn't, didn't take that responsibility, didn't protect me. Um, or by their uh, behavior, um, 
even encouraged me to f <laughs> in the in the wrong direction in a certain way. It's grief. It's 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 not. You know, it's 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 always hard to uh, to blame people for this. It's oftentimes in life people try to do a good job, but they sometimes uh, make decisions and that are not good at all, are harmful. But it's not always their fault. It is uh, sometimes it's ignorance, ignorance. Sometimes, and I think in my case. Uh, a number of these parental figures have hurt me because they themselves were hurt. Um, damaged people damage people. <laughs> it's, I think it's true. And so um, there was a lot of sadness and grief that I realized that, well, maybe I have to re repaint the picture that I always had of my childhood. And, and it's the reality is different from what I concocted about it. Um, we always try to make things work. We want to uh, have explanations for everything. And so our brain is extremely good at uh, narrating our own personal history in such a way that it makes sense. However, that's not always... Um, that's not always beneficial. We sometimes tell a story to soothe ourselves so we don't have to be confronted with the truth, with what hurt, what, how damaged we are, and how damaged people that surrounded us were. We want everything to be a fairy tale. And I sometimes wonder if my penchant for fantasy and science fiction and uh, even my own tendency to <laughs> to be like super optimistic and uh, and maybe even naive if if some of that at least is not a reaction to or a, a part of that scheme that I activate to not having to confront the the damage in my own life and how much I I was damaged uh, and, and not just me, but also people that I love and care for. Um, and that's all kind of, that all came to the surface this year. And um, I have not shared much about that here on the podcast. Um, but you've, you've definitely, I think, experienced the effects of uh, this process in the, by the choices that I made, of, of the, the things that I talked about. Um, but not everything is clear yet. And so I don't want to... Uh, I'm always... In, in this process, it's, it's much more about uh, processing my what it does to me and what I learn with you. That is how I try to, um, in a certain way, reframe um, the... the kind of the, the, the difficult sides of, of my personal history that I've, that I've discovered. Um, and it's thankfully, it's a thing of the past. This is, this is, uh, we're talking about childhood trauma. I am an adult. I'm actually even 
an older adult right now, none of those threads that I experienced as a child are, are here anymore. But as often happens with childhood trauma, I've internalized that feeling of insecurity and that anxiety. And instead of having people around me that actually threaten me and uh, uh, make me feel afraid, I have internalized that voice, that very critical, strict, punishing, demanding voice of these parental figures. And, and it's only this year that I started to discover how that process actually works and how much it explains so much of my behavior including my dysfunctional behavior uh, when it comes to, to the work that I do and how I do that and how I often tend to, um, to forget myself and not protect my boundaries. Um, there's a small white dog who's now deciding whether to follow its owner or continue to look at me. Hey, buddy. <laughs> and now I talk to him. So he's like, oh, you want to play? Guess not. Oh, well. <laughs> but um, some of these dogs can have that look where they're like, I don't understand. What do you want from me? <laughs> As if every uh, bit of attention is putting them into an existential crisis. This dog definitely had that like frown in his face. Like, okay, so who are you and what do I have to do? <laughs> Nothing. Uh, but then, so the first phase, definitely grief and sadness. Also because I, I've realized that this has not only hurt and impacted my life, but also that of other, others in my life that I, that I love and care for. So that was hard. The second phase or emotion is, is that of, of anger, of indignation, I should say. Not violent anger. Um, oh, I recognize this. This is a, another path where we do our training. And it's, this is the most <laughs> feared part of the training where this is a very um, long slope upwards. And you, so you do your interval training here and you have to run uphill, which is so incredibly strenuous. Anyway, uh, but it's, it's this indignation that how did that happen and why when you measure the extent of the tra trauma, you are mad at the situation. And um, maybe even also anger that I've pushed away for so long because I felt like, well, you know, that's not the way of the, of the force. <laughs> I should be calm and in control and I shouldn't blame other people and all that. But sometimes there is just a lot of unprocessed emotion. And, uh, and, and, and both these, these very strong emotions uh, mostly express themselves in, in my dreams and in certain... There were moments where I woke up in the morning and I was exhausted because I'd been kind of re-going through those emotions. Um, and then the, the, the phase after 
anger and indignation, which is still there. Um, I, I, I'm not done <laughs> processing this. I'm certainly not at the point of uh, letting it all behind me because um, I feel like I'm in the midst of this whole process. And I, I want to give it time. If there's one thing that um, I've learned from a lot of therapists and people uh, that know these kind of processes is that the, 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 least, the last thing you want to do is to push away your emotions. You have, to, you have to give it room. They are there, but they are not necessarily... They, they're not going to take over anymore. Part of the healing is coming to terms with those emotions and those feelings instead of pushing them away or overcompensating uh, in order to not having to face them. Um, so it's to, to create, again, I've talked about this also in the previous episode of The Walk, give yourself room in situations like this to process, to grieve, to feel. And don't, don't, don't pile up too much other stuff um, to, because it will only uh, stop that process of, of healing. And, and this is something you, you notice a lot with people around you, maybe in your own life as well. Um, it's when people start, like, I remember my dad um, was, was a workaholic. He was always working, 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 working. Always stressed. Never relaxed. It's very, very rare to uh, see my father uh, at peace. He was always angry at something or stressed out or thinking about something and working on something. There was so much. And, uh, and, then, and he had a, a number of other issues that I think all... It's, it's always difficult to judge someone if you're not that person <laughs> or his therapist. But I, I, I can't... I, I keep thinking, oh, maybe that was for him a way to push away his own his own hurt and his own problems. Maybe. I don't know. Let's, let's bring us back to our personal lives. Um, then, after you've acknowledged those feelings and you start to understand, that's where I started to measure the damage. It's like a survey. It's like an exploration of, so how... How does this impact my life? How has it impacted my life? And uh, that required most of all uh, to be finely attuned to my own feelings. Um, and in this context, um, it has really helped me um, to have gone through this, um, uh, this therapy phase after I got long COVID. Um, where uh, the um, part of the therapeutic process was to uh, learn um, uh, the the techniques of mindfulness. It kind of summarizes mindfulness. It's a whole bunch of different things, but a lot of it comes down to um, creating space, inner space, room um, to to process how you feel, to observe without judging, and. Once you you have a good grip of, of what's going on inside of you, you can then start to 
reframe it and put it in a different context. So you separate yourself, you create space between you and your emotions, which means that you actually are more in control. Um, but in order to, when you start to apply that, you also um, are, at least I was, I felt invited to um, open myself up for all these moments where I, um, where these emotions are still in control. The anxiety of not being good enough, not working good enough. Uh, Often these exercises in mindfulness allowed me to explore what was going on. And so I would stop myself very often. Like, and sometimes other people would signal to me, like the board or Inge or other people that I work with, telling me like, hey, you're doing that thing again. Where... You want so much. You feel so much pressure. You create so much pressure for yourself. Nobody asks you to do this. You, uh, you burden yourself with this. And then I hopefully took a, a, enough time this year to explore. So where does this come from? What is this, what is this fear? Where, what is this anxiety? How do I relate to this emotion? Um, why am I angry? How, how, uh, where does that come from? Uh, why <laughs> am I uh, targeting myself maybe uh, with that anger or um, where I reproach myself um, or I even accuse myself of not being good enough? You know, I'm too lazy. I shouldn't be doing this. I should work harder. Um, and, and is that justified? Or have, are you just continuing <laughs> this uh, internalizing process where the people that actually deserve that anger and should be stopped are replaced by yourself? You're, you're blaming yourself because the other person cannot be blamed anymore. Um, so that, and, and I think that, that process for me has been extremely important and I'm only now at the point where I, <laughs> I'm starting to, to, uh, to feel that the anxiety, now that I understand where it comes from, um, and I've, I've given it room in my life, and I know that this, is, uh, this has a, a, a continuous impact. I, I know the strength and also the danger of that negative, demanding, and punishing inner voice. I'm getting to the point where I can shut it down. I can tell it to shut up because it's not the truth and it's not helpful. <laughs> and I can, I'm starting to replace it with other language, with other inner, inner language, inner, inner speak. Um, by, uh, by self-care, um, where, don't get me wrong, the word, the word self-care um, always feels a bit, I don't know, I always felt it was a bit iffy because it, it sounds a bit egotistical. Um, but that too is part of my programming. <laughs> it's the way I was brought up. Where if you would think of yourself, that, w- that meant automatically moral judgment. It's, uh, it's selfish. Uh, whenever I would lock myself up in my room, and I did that quite a bit... 
and I realize now also why I did that as a child, it was challenged. It was uh, oftentimes labeled as selfish behavior. And there was a lot of judgment when it came to self-care. And I, um, I'm only now discovering that that was not the truth. That, that is, that's not good. And that self-care in itself is, um, in fact, something I think that Jesus asks us to do. In, in, in the most important commandment, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Self-care, loving yourself, accepting yourself, forgiving yourself, taking good care of yourself mentally, spiritually, physically. It's part of what Jesus wants us to do because he knows how much the way in which we look at ourselves impacts the way we look at others. Why is Jesus so good for the people that he meets and when he has criticism it's always it's honest it's truthful it always has a goal to help people to make different choices and to realize something about themselves but how can Jesus be so merciful towards the people that he encounters even if they're sinners people that have that are very dysfunctional that have betrayed what their their vocation their fellow citizens they work for the for the romans they do all sorts of evil how can jesus be so kind to them it's because jesus is the son of god and he has lived for the entirety of his existence which is eternal in that completely outward love of his father this this total dedication this this uh, um, love without any demands um, and and Jesus has always loved his father back in the same way and so what you see in his uh, in his day-to-day behavior when he meets other people is 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 that he treats other people the way he is loved himself by his father. <laughs> um, so in a way, the, the love of the Trinity is the ultimate model for self-care. God love is love in himself. And there is no greater love than that of his father for Jesus and for, between Jesus and his father. And so, and that love nourishes his love for anyone he meets. And, and so self-care and self-love can be an incredible engine and source of energy for you to love the people around you. But you cannot love if you don't love yourself. If you don't take good care of yourself, if you hate yourself, if you condemn yourself, There's a huge risk that that behavior and that judgment and that attitude will affect other people as well. Damaged people damage people. And people that heal and take time to heal 
can be a source of healing for other people that are hurt. Because you feel what they feel. But you also know the what kind of medication is needed to heal these these deep wounds that are caused by a lack of love and care and safety. So, uh, and for me, all that uh, is symbolized by that figure of the angel hovering over the nativity scene on the drawing above my bed. I think as a toddler, I saw that angel, and even above that, I saw the star which had that same golden shine, the symbol of, of God's love shown through the angel in a certain way onto the people below. It's, it's realizing that that love is still there. And even though you may have, you may have been hurt by the people that were supposed to protect you, um... God is greater than they are. And he's able to heal every wound. And in contrast with people that have forsaken you and have abandoned you, God never does. And in that dark night when Jesus was born, God was there. And his light illuminated and warmed the people that craved that warmth and that love. And the little savior that was born that night was there because of all these people that were suffering and hurting, that were oppressed and unfree. And he started loving every one of us by loving his father and his mother and everyone who came to visit him and he never stopped doing that and he wants you to love yourself to love him to love his father to love your neighbor as you love yourself and he gives you the energy to do so in the form of the Holy Spirit his personal love for us that can become a source of light and safety and peace for the world in which you were sent Merry Christmas thanks for listening and we'll talk soon God bless